Well, welcome here also. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm pastor here of Tri-City Church, and it's great to have you here with us. Uh, I just want to piggyback on one of the announcements about our meeting next Sunday, our business and vision meeting. Uh, we will be uh, emailing out uh, financial statements because that's part of what we're going to look at in the meeting. So uh, if you're uh, not yet on the weekly email and would like those statements, uh, go to the Connect desk, say, I'd like the weekly email, and it will be included there. Uh, also, for all those who have uh, applied to be members, uh, we have, uh, we think, uh, communicated to everyone now. We've connected with everyone uh, by email or by phone. So if you haven't yet heard of us, p- please let us know. Uh, next Sunday, we'd like to have a time of commissioning in our Sunday morning gatherings uh, for our first uh, group of members, which is exciting. And so we want to make sure that everyone who's interested in that has been connected with. So again, talk to uh, the people at the Connect Desk so we can follow up with that. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into our text this morning. Uh, we have the opportunity to, to continue on in Luke, but uh, last week we were Luke 24. Now we're jumping all the way back to Luke 3 and 4 uh, in a new series. So uh, I'm excited about this. We've got some uh, bright colors for spring, and, uh, and we're going to see what God has for us this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll see, uh, see where we're at. Uh, Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, that we can come here, we can, we can gather freely, we can open your word freely. Uh, God, I pray that uh, as we devote our, our attention to what you were saying uh, in the earlier parts of Luke, God, that we would, we would know more of who you are. And Lord, especially today, God, I pray that we would see uh, more clearly what is it you're calling us to and how it is that we can uh, find, find peace with you. And so I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open, our minds would be open, and God, that uh, as you speak through your word, Lord, that we would be uh, impacted and changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, Luke 3 and 4, uh, in case you're not aware, is, uh, is just, just right before the official ministry of Jesus begins. And so, as I said, after Easter, we were looking a lot, uh, sort of at the Luke 24, the resurrection stories. But from now until the beginning of summer, we're going to look at this interesting uh, part of the Bible, the gospel, where we see uh, some people who are preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus. And one person in particular uh, who does this is John the Baptist. Now, if you don't know John the Baptist, he is actually Jesus' cousin. And uh, there's a lot of things to know about John the Baptist, but the first thing to know is that he was not a quiet man. He was very loud. His ministry was out in the wilderness, and he would, he would yell a lot of the time. Uh, he didn't tell, you know, kind of endearing anecdotes about his life, like in his sermons. He didn't have cute analogies. He, for the most part, he, he yelled, and he had one message. His message was this. Repent. Repent. Everyone... In the sound of my voice, you need to repent. You need to recognize that on your own, you're headed in the wrong direction. That there is sin in your life, and in repentance, you would recognize, man, this is going to only lead to further destruction. It's going to lead to the consequences and judgment of God. So when repentance means to turn and look to God for hope. If he had had a pulpit, he would have pounded it. He would have been like, repent! He would have had a Bible. He would have been shaking it and pounding it. He was the original fire and brimstone preacher. If you went to hear him, I think you would have thought, man, this this guy seems really angry. Why is he so angry? Sometimes the yelling can be construed as anger, but he wasn't angry. He was just, he was very impassioned. He cared deeply 
about the people who were coming to hear him preach. And he knew that there was one thing they needed to hear, one thing that would, that would mean peace in this life and the life to come. And so he was preaching it with all the emphasis that he could. Kind of reminds me of, uh, oddly enough, a t-shirt that I, I once had. Uh, in fact, I still have it. Uh, it's a t-shirt that I got in university. And uh, see, I went to Trinity Western University. I, I didn't live in the dorms there, but I had a good friend, Keith, who did. And so I was kind of an honorary member of a North Lower in my first year of university. And uh, probably not surprisingly, it was a fairly loud place, right? A, a guy's dorm. There's generally a lot of, a lot of yelling. We, we tend to have, um, we had actually three guys in particular that were just, they couldn't speak without yelling. I don't know what it was. It was always loud. And so over the course of the year, we, we kind of uh, developed a bit of a slogan for our dorm, uh, kind of a saying that, that we said fairly often. And eventually someone decided, you know what, we should put this on a t-shirt. I think this would be really great if it was on a t-shirt and we could all wear it. And so I, I didn't wear it today, but I brought it because uh, it's one of those, you know, momentous, those mementos of my time. And also Don wouldn't let me wear it. So this is what it, this is what it says. This is our slogan. I yell because I care. That's what we would say. I'm yelling because I really care about you and you need to hear what I'm saying. This is a great saying for coaches and parents and teachers, right? I'm, I'm yelling because I care. Now, in the dorm, it was, it was just an excuse for us to be loud whenever we wanted to be loud. But there's truth contained within that saying. And the truth is that there are times when because you really care about someone in your life or a group of people, And because they aren't aware of some important thing, some danger they're in, some peril that they are in, that that you are not going to whisper, you are not going to quietly suggest, you are going to yell. There are times when when we feel the need to make ourselves heard. We, we We don't quietly tell people that the building is on fire. We say the building is on fire. You need to run. When our children are you know, barreling headlong into traffic, we don't quietly, you know, try to interrupt them. We yell, we grab them because the situation is serious and because we want for them to hear us so that they might, they might be helped, they might be saved. They yell, we yell because we care. And this is John's approach. We're going to see it in our text this morning. He yells because he cares. He cares enough about people to confront them in their sin. To not just talk to them about it, but to really, to really confront them in it. Because he knows that it will destroy them. And so I yell because I care is a great slogan that you might have. But it also happens to be the, the title of our sermon. And uh, I'll warn you, I may do if I feel led a little bit of yelling. Not too much, okay? So just to, to give you a heads up. Uh, we're going to begin though in uh, chapter 3 of uh, Luke. Looking at verse 1. And this here introduces uh, the ministry of John. So uh, read with me or just listen uh, to God's word. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eutorea, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. That's God's word to us this morning. You can see there was definitely a little bit of yelling in there. He's very impassioned. But really his message is, uh, is got only one point. And so our sermon this morning is only going to have one point. And the point is this, repent. That's what John is saying. So the word of God is telling us, repent. We're going to see really that there are though two components to true and genuine repentance, a changed heart and a changed life. But before we get there, we need to understand a bit of the context. Uh, in particular, Luke gives us a lot of details about where we are and, and kind of who's in charge. He kind of gives us a bit of a, uh, the setting, that those in authority. He mentions seven people who are in authority. Uh, we have Caesar, Pilate, Herod, Philip, Trachonitis, and Lysanias. Those are the political rulers. But also he mentions some uh, religious rulers, Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest at the time. So these details tell us a couple things. For one thing, uh, it's very clear that what we're reading is a historical document. This isn't, this isn't mythology. This isn't made up. All of these people, you can go to other texts, historical texts, and say, oh yeah, this is, this is when this was taking place, which would have been about 27 AD, give or take a year. Uh, so Jesus was born about 27 years earlier, just before he begins his ministry when he's around 30. And so it tells us when, but it also gives us uh, a very good impression of the mood of the age. Because if you know these people, you know these rulers, uh, you know that they are, they are harsh rulers. This is a time of oppression, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people of the region. I mean, all these people, uh, Caesar, Pilate, Herod, Philip, those ones in particular, we're going to see them in the time of the crucifixion. And their overarching concern is for themselves and for Rome. Right? They, they don't really care about the people that they are ruling over. And even with the religious leaders, with Annas and Caiaphas, um, if you were to hear those names in that time, you would know oh, they're in those positions of power because of nepotism. That, that, that role of chief priest, had, high priest had been passed down through their family. And so what we have here is a picture of, of those in power who don't really care about those beneath them. It's, it's a time of, of darkness, spiritual darkness, political darkness. And as a contrast to that darkness, we have Luke break in with some words of light. And this is in verse 2 and 3. 
It says then, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a big deal. We don't, I think, fully appreciate how big a deal this is because for us, the, the gap between the Old and New Testament is a title page, right? We, we think, oh, now the New Testament began. That, w- that was quick. But in reality, it was, it was 400 years, 400 years of, of silence where God had not spoken to humanity or to his people, the Jewish people, through a prophet. And then here comes John. And John is, is totally an Old Testament prophet. I mean, he's right out of central casting. He's got, he's got the beard. He's got the long hair. We're told he wears a cloak of, of camel skin. He's eating wild locusts and honey. We're told that he grows up in the wilderness and he is built to preach. That's the, the desire of his heart. He's filled with the Spirit of God and wants to let people know the one message that he has, which is, which is repent. Find forgiveness of your sins and be baptized. But, but notice, he's not, he's not trying to build a new ministry. It's not about him. In fact, he is positioned in the perfect place to prepare the way of Jesus. His job is to get people ready for the coming Messiah. And we see here in the text that Luke uh, includes a passage from Isaiah, which talks about, you know, from the past, looks forward to the coming Messiah. And so we see here that John is kind of a bridge in between the Old and the New Testament. We see God's promise of the Messiah and then the beginning of the fulfillment of it. So we're going to look at the passage uh, where John, uh, sorry, Luke quotes from Isaiah. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 5, but it's in our text. And it says this, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's John, prepare the way of the Lord. That's, that's the coming Messiah, Jesus. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now the picture there is an interesting one. It's one that would have been very familiar to them. Uh, see, there was a custom back in those days where if a, a ruler was, uh, you know, approaching a city, was going to come and visit a city, all the people of the town, they would come out to the town and they would, they would smooth out the pathway leading into the village. They would actually go out, kind of like for us, a red carpet. The idea was to provide uh, a way so that the ruler could enter with all the, the pomp and circumstance and respect that he, he deserved because of his position. But more than a red carpet, they would actually come and they would take the rocks and move them. They would smooth out the road and make it all pristine. And because they didn't know exactly when the dignitary would be arriving, from the entourage of the emperor or king or whatever, they would send a messenger out ahead. And the messenger would say, hey, the king is coming. He's quick. There's, get things ready. And so they would come and make sure the path was smooth. And then it would provide uh, an easy, a welcome avenue for this, this king to enter into their town. So the custom was clear. But if you notice the words of Isaiah, it, it, they're very extreme. I mean, if you look at what is being said, it's not just a, a pathway that's being smoothed. He says that the, every mountain, giant mountains will be brought low. And and valleys would be filled up. I mean, this is no ordinary road improvement project. The, the, the language here is extreme because the, the point is, is not that the people should mend their roads. 
The point is that they should give attention to the pathways into their heart because the Messiah is coming. And just as there are obstacles on roadways that need to be tended to, there are also obstacles into the pathways of our own heart. And I think you know what those are. They're always to do with sin. Things like pride, things like like greed and anger and self-centeredness. All of these things make the core of who we are inaccessible from the people around us and from God. If you think about any of the relationships that you've had where there has been, there's been trouble, it's been difficulty connecting with, with a friend or a loved one, isn't it true that there's always some presence of sin there? Maybe on your part, maybe on their part, and it makes it so that it, it's just very difficult to, to actually connect with another person. And certainly for us to really have communion with God, the presence of sin, it it makes the the landscape of our heart mountainous and rocky. It isolates us. In Canada, uh, we know the challenge of making a smooth path through a mountainous region, don't we? I mean, our, our country was united with a railroad. And there were certain parts of that railroad that were easygoing. I think they laid the track through the prairies in like a couple days, right? Just keep going. It's all flat. It's easy. This is great. Until they got to BC. What? Why? Does this have to be part of Canada? This looks, that's where it got costly, got difficult to try to find a smooth way through the Rockies. I mean, these days we have much better equipment. We have, I don't know if you saw uh, when they were working on the Sea to Sky Highway, uh, before the Olympics, we drove up there a couple times and they had these massive excavators perched kind of on the edge of a cliff and digging away and smoothing things out. We have now uh, reinforced concrete and suspension bridges and things so that we really can make a smooth path through almost anywhere because we have the right equipment. So the question is, what sort of heavy equipment is there to deal with the the sin in our hearts? What is it that can, that can smooth out all, all the, the jagged edges that comes with our sin? And the answer we find here is that there's really only one. It's repentance. Repentance is the steam shovel that, that reshapes the very contours of our heart. Because in repentance, what we're doing is we're saying that this way that I'm going, which is filled with sin, Areas of disobedience to God, areas that, that I know are bringing hurt to me and, and strife with my relationships, I'm turning from those ways. I'm acknowledging that, that this is wrong, I'm sorry for my sin, and I'm turning to God for the forgiveness of my sins, and then to walk in obedience to Him. And so we have two aspects, as I mentioned earlier, two, two things that are necessary for there to be true repentance. Uh, first, a changed heart, and then secondly, a changed life. And just to mess with everyone, we're going to do them backwards. We're going to start with number two. Because uh, in number two, we see the, how, how, things, how our life should be changed. But really, the burden of the text, I think, lands on the heart. And so I want, I want to land there in the end. But let's first look at verses 10 to 14. So the, the last part of our text, there are people who are wanting to be repentant. They're coming to John. They're hearing this message. And they're saying, I, I want that. I, that's how I want to live. What do I do? And John, not surprisingly, says, well, well, if that's the desire of your heart, then, then it's going it's to show in the way that you treat people. 
And he gives three examples, or three groups of people that come and ask him. First is just kind of regular citizens. And he says to them, well, you need to share your things. In fact, all of these examples have to do with money and possessions, which is no surprise because very often our heart gets wrapped up in those kinds of things. So to the general populace, he said, man, you should, you should care about people in your lives. You should be generous with the things that you have. To the tax collectors, he says, well, we'll stop stealing. Only take as much as you're supposed to take. And to the soldiers, he says, stop taking advantage of others because you have power over them. He says, be content with your wage. And that principle is one that holds true over every area of our life. See, this, this idea is not really a Christian idea in the sense that, that anyone who has a conviction about something, we would expect that there would be consistency in their life. Right? No matter what it is, no matter what ideology, you say, no, this is, this is what I believe, this is how I want to live. If you aren't actually living that way, then people would say, I, I don't know if I believe you. Or I don't know if you're really clear on what you believe because you're not living that way. And so John is saying very clearly something that, that I think is just common sense is that if you have a real desire to be walking with the Lord, to be repentant, then, then it's going to change the way that you treat other people. It's going to change the way that we, you see the things that God has given you. It's always going to work itself out on, on the outside. And if it's not, then, then maybe there just needs to be a, a sense of greater discipline, a sense of, uh, no, I really, I really do want to do the things that I believe, but, but maybe... Maybe it's because there's a problem on the inside. Maybe it's because at the core of who you are, you, you haven't truly repented. You haven't really turned from your ways. So that's why I want to I look at the first thing. Repentance means a changed heart because that really is the key to, to all of this. And by changed heart, uh, really what we're talking about here is, is salvation. It's being right with God. And I say that because of a couple of key verses. Uh, The first is verse 3, where we see that that John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that means salvation. That's the whole point of the forgiveness of sins, that you're right with God, that you're saved. Uh, But in verse 6, we also see that in 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 preparing the way of the Lord, it says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so you put those two things together and we get the idea that to be saved, John is saying you need to repent. You need to turn to God and ask for help. And that's that's the same message we find throughout the whole Bible. In fact, Jesus, when he begins his ministry, he says the exact same thing. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. One thing you might uh, wonder about or, or notice, though, is John is saying this before Jesus has gone to the cross. And so repentance is something that, that carries through, but there's, there's still a missing element for John. I mean, he, he doesn't yet know how God will forgive sins. But he realizes that, that what's necessary for all people of all time is that we see, we see the gravity of sin, we see where it is leading, and that we turn to God for help. And we trust him for our forgiveness. See, just repentance itself is not enough. It's essential, but it's not enough because just being sorry for your sin, it doesn't actually pay the debt of your sin. By the grace of God, we have that in Christ. That's, that's why this is an on-ramp to salvation, an on-ramp to the, to the true ministry, the Messiah who's come, 
Because Jesus is the one who is going to go to the cross and pay the debt of our sin, which is, which is death. He takes on the death that we deserve in our sin, the, the just consequence for our sin. He takes it upon himself, conquers death, and comes back to life. And there we find, oh, that's how we'll be forgiven of our sins. But the repentance is a disposition of heart that, that began with John. In fact, before, even into the Old Testament. And it's still an attitude of faith. It's them saying, well, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I trust that you will. And, and this explains John's baptism. Like, have you ever wondered what, what exactly is going on in the baptism? Because for us, since Jesus died and rose again, baptism is all about that. If you're here with us at Easter, the, the testimony is here's what Jesus has done to save me. And the picture is one of the death, right? We're, we're with him in his death in the water, and then we're raised to new life. But John is baptizing people, but not, it couldn't, couldn't be in the name of Jesus. He, hasn't, he doesn't know yet. See, that baptism is, is all about repentance. It's a different picture. It's, it's, a, it's a precursor to the full baptism that, that comes with Christ. And we see that because he is proclaiming the, the baptism of repentance. It's a picture of the, the cleaning, the cleansing of God. We go under the water, we're cleaned of our sin, and we're raised but there's a problem. And the problem is one that, that persists to this day. See, the problem is that people were coming to John to be baptized, but, but he could tell that in their hearts, they were really just looking for the external symbol of repentance. They, they liked the baptism part. That seems good. People applaud, right? Hooray, that, that's great. You get up, you feel cleansed, and you go on. But in their hearts, they really had no desire to actually be repentant. They weren't actually sorrowful for their sin. And you can tell that this is an issue because <clears throat> John starts yelling again. Look at verse 7. The crowds come to him, which you think would be a good thing. Preachers love it when there's people listening. But he rebukes them. He says, you brood of vipers. Which is a great way to start a sermon. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now he's not just calling them snakes. He's not just calling them names. The picture there is one they would have known uh, of snakes fleeing a brush fire, really slithering for their life, trying to get away from this coming judgment, the, the fire. And, and what he's saying to the people is you're only here because you're concerned about the judgment of God. And so what you want is a, an external symbol. You want to be baptized and feel good about it and go on your way, but not ever change your life. And he's saying that, that that's not going to work. And we know that because the next image he uses is of a tree. And what we see there is that he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The thing about trees is what, whatever's on the inside of a tree will, will come out in their fruit. A bad tree will bear bad fruit. A good tree will, will bear good fruit. And he's saying, if there isn't the fruit of repentance in your lives, like if you aren't actually confessing sin, if you aren't actually dealing with what's going on in your heart, then you can't just get, get baptized and say, now, now I'm good. It doesn't work that way. True repentance means a changed heart. But for many people, we're, we're drawn to the external symbols. We aren't, we aren't willing, we aren't interested in doing the hard work of, of digging into the depths of our own heart. I know for me, this, this was a major problem for me when I came to faith. 
I, I came to faith in my teens. A friend of mine, uh, Keith, who I went to university with later, uh, he invited me to youth group. And I started hearing the, the Christian message. And, and for me, it, it actually made a lot of sense fairly quickly. When I heard about sin, I looked at the world and I thought, yeah, actually that explains a lot. And it also explains why I feel so guilty a lot of the time about the bad things that I'm doing. And when I heard about Jesus and his death on the cross on my behalf, I thought, and that also sounds, sounds true. And so I, I started going to youth group. I started going with his family to, to church. I, I, at one point, finally said, no, I, I believe this. I became a Christian. I, I bought a Bible. I, I got baptized. I, I even started in time to, to help with the kids' ministry and work at the church. From the outside looking in, there was a lot of things that seemed like they were, everything was just fine in my life. That I was someone who was really sold out for the Lord. But on the inside, there was all manner of unconfessed sin. There were huge mountainous regions of my heart that I did not want to deal with. I did not want to examine. I did not want to bring to light and confess. And that's often the case. I mean, for me, people would, would look and say, boy, he, I mean, he's writing, he's writing kids lessons to help them know about Jesus. I mean, what more do you want? It seems like he really cares about this. It seems like he's really into this. And yet on the inside, that there is all manner of pride. There is all manner of lust and selfishness. And I went on like that for years. And I remember thinking, I mean, God, surely, surely you're going to look at me and take all of these good things into account. I mean, I'm, I'm running day camps, God, for, for kids in your church. So, so there must be some balancing that's going to go on here. I know there's these areas and I, I probably should deal with them. But, but as you look at me, probably you're going to see the whole and, and things will be all right. And that's kind of what the, the crowds were thinking as they heard John preach. Except for them, they were thinking, man, we're, we're Jews. We're descendants of Abraham. And one thing we know is that God made a covenant with, with the Jewish people. And that means that, I mean, we're, we're in. We're special. Probably we should deal with some of this stuff. But, but the, the thing that's defining us is who we are as Jews. And John looks at them. And the words he says would have been like a slap in the face. Here's what he says in verse 8 and 9. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, he's not, he's not ambiguous about what he feels about this. He's very clear. Look, if, if that's what you're trusting in, you are a fool. You think that some good things in your past, in your past lineage, are going to make up for the sin, for your disobedience to God? You think, for us, you would say that you've, that you've shown up all your life to church, you're part of a Christian family, that you're on a serve team, that you read your Bible every once in a while. You think those things are somehow going to even out the scales of the depth of your sin? And he says these things because he really cares for them. He gives that image of an axe. 
poised the acts of God's judgment and wrath to, to the root of every tree because he wants them to see that if you, if you are not truly repentant, if you haven't found your salvation in the work of Jesus, the forgiveness of God, then you are in a dire situation. Now we have to be clear. He isn't speaking here about those that, that struggle with sin. I mean, all of us, if you're a believer here, you, you know that you may have a heart's desire to overcome sin in your life and yet there's struggle. That, that's not the issue. There will always be struggle this side of, of heaven. In fact, the struggle is a clear sign that the spirit of God is at work, that you're not, you're not okay with sin. What, what he's talking about are those that, that would say there's these areas in my life that I haven't ever talked to God about, I haven't ever talked to anyone about, and, and I'm just at peace with them. I'm not going to bring them to light. I don't think it's necessary. And what he's saying is if, if that's the attitude of your heart, then you have reason to be concerned. Because the whole idea of salvation is one where you, you acknowledge your sin and you say to God, I, I need forgiveness. I see that, that here is where I need help. And in speaking those words and confessing that, it's, it's a sign, it's an indication that that really is the desire of your heart. But we resist this. At least I did. For many, many years. In fact, it wasn't until uh, into the early years of my marriage that, that I really took seriously some of these areas of unconfessed sin. And it was, it was the Spirit of God that just would not bring me peace because I had not yet confessed. I had not yet brought them to light. But it was not easy. By that point, there were some, some things that I had not been honest about with Don. And so that meant conversations where I, I, I had to humble myself and admit that this, there are things that you should know, things that I need forgiveness for. And those conversations, they always... They strain a relationship. But the beautiful thing about repentance is that you experience then the forgiveness both of God and of the people in your life. And we look back on that time and say that's, that's really where our relationship began. Both for Don and I and really for, for God and myself. That there was intimacy there because there was honesty. Because the sin that had been dividing unbeknownst to, to Don and really to myself, was, was then dealt with. Dealt with at the cross. And there was work to be done, but because of repentance, there is then a union. And it all happens because we can be genuinely forgiven. See, we, we often go about life thinking that, that we don't need to root it out. Like a bullet wound. We think that we can just leave it in there. It'll be fine. No one needs to know. We'll put a nice big bandage around that wound and everything will be fine. And of course, we know it's not going to be fine. That's what leads to, to infection and gangrene and losing limbs and losing your life. And that's why for John, it, that's, that's why he's yelling. Because it's urgent. Because the stakes are so high. He, it's the most urgent need that every human being has on the planet. That we would know the salvation of God. That we would repent but it's not in our nature to see it that way. I came across a, an interesting story about a, a preacher. His name is Peter Cartwright. Uh, he, I think you'll agree, was a very serious man because I, I brought a picture and, uh, and look at him. 
I mean, he, <clears throat> he was a preacher in the 1850s. I think everyone had that expression in the 1850s. Uh, but he was, a, he was a Methodist preacher. And he was given the opportunity to preach uh, in front of the uh, president of the United States. At that time, Andrew Jackson. And so uh, as he was preparing his, his sermon uh, the day or so before, uh, some of the people from the president's office came to him and they said to him, look, uh, Mr. Cartwright, you, you're going to be preaching for the president. We would just ask that you, uh, you keep your comments respectful because they knew he was a bit of a fiery preacher. And so we said, he said, okay. And the day came and uh, everyone's there and in the church and, and he gets up to speak. And this is what he says. He says, I understand that Andrew Jackson is here and I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. And then he said, Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. <laughs> and everyone in the congregation, ah! how, could you, how could you say that? Why, why would you, Cartwright, why would you say that? I mean, there are tons of verses in here that are really encouraging, really flowery and fluffy. There are psalms that are all about just the grace of God. Why, why would you have to make everyone so uncomfortable in that room to, to suggest that even the president, if he doesn't repent, he's going to hell? That, no one feels good after that. But interestingly, the, the president came up to him after, and he said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. So he recognized that, that he was speaking out of conviction, that, that he had the courage and, and really the love for the people in the room to confront them in their sin. It's because, of his, it's because he cared that he was willing to, to say some difficult things. And that's what we see in John. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to yell, but I do care. And the message that we have here in the Bible is, is the same message that has always been preached because the problem has always been the same which is unconfessed sin. And for some of us here, that means that we have really never accepted the forgiveness of, of Jesus. That we've never, we've never prayed like I did back in my teens and said, said God, I, I need your forgiveness. I see that I'm a sinner. I need your help. And for some of us, that means that we've been walking for years with whole areas of our life in darkness. And we haven't been willing to bring them to light. And the effects have been there in our lives. We've been ignoring them. And so what, I, what I'd like to do today, in light of God's word, is, is to have a time of response. Where we as a people, guests and, and Tri-City family, we have an opportunity to do some business with God. And for those of you who haven't really ever gotten right with God, I just want to tell you how to do it. It's, it's a momentous thing. It's of great magnitude. There is no more important decision that you could make, but it's actually a very simple thing too. Because you simply, you simply talk to God in prayer. And you might say something like this, Lord, I, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I recognize that in the way that I've lived, I have not been obedient to you. And I see that the consequences of sin, I see it in the pages of scripture, is, is death forever. But I also see that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I can have the hope of life because Jesus died in my place on the cross for my sins. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would, you would save me. I believe, Jesus, that you did that to save me. And I pray that you would, you would come into my life and, and change me and make me into the person you want me to be. And that's a prayer that you can say today. 
And what I want to make clear is that those words, they are not the thing that saves you. Those words are an expression of a changed heart. They're, they're necessary because they articulate what's going on in our heart. And they don't have to be those, those exact words, but the sentiment is one of, God, I need your help. I, I see that on my own, I, I, I will not have hope that goes beyond this life. And so we're, we're going to have an opportunity. Uh, as I said, for those that have never yet prayed, come to God in that way, but also for those of us who, who we just know that there's some things that we need to, we need to confess to the Lord. And so uh, the band is obviously starting to play. I'm going to ask everyone to stand.